for July 30th, 2018. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 526. Mission Impossible, Hell and High Helicopter. Overthinking it, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. We overthinkers are like we're like uh, an impossible podcast force. We uh, we disband and then come together every week. And your podcast, should you choose to accept it, is on uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, the latest entry in the franchise, which opened to pretty good numbers this week, and people apparently are going to this movie uh, franchise best opening weekend and it stars an improbably old tom cruise uh who who you know i don't know he's he's looking good uh i'm 56 he's looking great yeah Yeah. um i am uh only uh only seven years older than paul rudd uh, I'm your host, Matt Rather. I'm here with the rest of the Impossible Podcast Force. Uh, with me is Peter Fenzel, Special Agent Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matthew. And uh, Special Agent Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Secret Agent Voice. Hello, Matt. Hello. All right. So, uh, blanket spoilers for Mission Impossible Fallout. I don't think they're important, though. They are. There are some crosses and double crosses, and, and as as befits. Uh, uh, Scooby-Doo, the Scooby-Doo-like aspect of this franchise where people pull off rubber masks to reveal that they were different people than the people that you thought they were all along. So if you care about preserving these uh, twists and turns that you can see coming a mile away, uh, by all means, uh, save this one to listen to later. But they are not the point of this movie, not even a little bit. But I think that this is a movie where the stated moral... The stated point has absolutely nothing to do <laughs> with the <laughs> the actual point uh, of the movie, right? It doesn't uh, it doesn't even come close. The stated moral of the movie is uh, spoken by the head of the uh, the CIA, right? Yes, uh, the head of the CIA, who is played by Angela Bassett, right? It's. Uh, yeah, who's played by Angela Bassett. I'm I'm actually more concerned as to whether it's the CIA. Um Erica yeah, Sloan. Oh, okay. Erica Sloan is the name of the of the character. And the CIA, which is a an agency that everybody knows about as opposed to the Impossible Mission Force, which is this kind of fairy tale. It's called Halloween thing a couple times. And after everything uh has been done, the head of the IMF is gone. Alec Baldwin, uh say Mort. Um and she says uh to Tom Cruise, I'm glad to know that someone will care about the one life so that I can care about the many. And it's, uh, it's an echo of something that was said earlier in the movie about how Ethan Hunt will put the, the good of the one over the good of the many. So this is a, uh, this is a, like a Star Trek three, you know, uh, sort of moral quandary here, kind of a Star Trek three trolley problem, a, uh, a hover trolley problem, if you will, in the Star Trek universe. Now, that has absolutely nothing to do with the point of the movie, which is uh, at the end of the day to watch Tom Cruise do stunts. Uh, in- ah, 
in a I hel- disagree, in, but in anyway, helico- continue. The, he, to watch him run really fast, like <laughs> with this like super marathoner posture, just just rigid, erect spine, and the uh, the arms and legs pumping, you know, just in this uh, incredible pose, and uh, to drive the the wrong way around the Arc de Triomphe in Paris um, to uh, to do this is the only helicopter fight of this sort that comes to mind um but all the other helicopter things are like war movies where uh where that i can think of are war movies where people are shooting at the helicopters or the helicopters are going down but this one is hot copter on copter action uh it's so it's so kinetic it's so exciting it's such a barrage of sensation about that more later but i want to start with the stated moral of the film to see if it has anything to do uh with what i think will emerge as the 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 real story of the film later does the good of the many outweigh the good of the few or the one pete should we go rescue spock (laughs) So what you're suggesting, for those who are not uh, edified in the Star Trek ways, in Star Trek II, Spock sacrifices himself for everybody else. And in Star Trek III, everybody else goes to a great deal of trouble to rescue Spock, and who has been reborn through technobabble means. And so you're suggesting the Star Trek III solution, that the needs of the one do outweigh the needs of the many, right? Which is the Shatner adaptation. I would say that there is an important way in which the answer is yes. There are several important ways in which the answer is yes, that the one person is more important than the many. And I think we intuit that it is the case, and we would certainly wish it to be the case were we the one. So I guess that's, I guess I would say there's two ways that I can think of in which the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Well, there's three. One is if you're behind the Rawlsian veil of ignorance and you don't get to choose who you're born into in society, If, say, you lived in a society in which, and this happens in certain anime, where, you know, one person gets tied up to a giant machine and is tortured so that everybody else is able to survive. This is a Rick and Morty plot, too. Everybody else is able to survive in comfort. Would you be okay with this one person suffering because of everybody else? Well, if you didn't know which person you were going to be born as, you would probably have a big problem with the possibility you might be born as the one person who gets tortured for eternity. You wouldn't take those odds? Well, so but that's the thing. You only get one shot. Like odds and expected value are for iterated games, man. <laughs> like it's for the situation when you can play multiple times. If you can only play once, uh, you know, odds are great and all, but uh, but they're not much comfort, right? Uh, certainly, if you were to improve the lot of the wor- the worst off in those kinds of situations, uh, you would ease a certain amount of potential. Uh, risk that you would be facing. I guess I don't know. Would you Would you take the odds? Would you guys I, take the odds of being tortured forever if you were one person in, say, like a town of ten thousand people? To one in uh, ten thousand, maybe not, but one in seven billion on Earth, you know, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So how, how many people? You, you, you can big? be the guy. Yeah. The, yeah, Matt, you can go ahead and be the guy. <laughs> the I'm not taking those odds. No, screw so, that. So, so let me. I'll pro- pro- propose two more reasons. One is just that we should not really ignore the human reality of self-preservation and also the fact that people form social bonds and we should not uh, act out the masquerade that we don't actually care more about the one person than we do about the many because we do right in the sense that like selfishness uh, you know in grouping and out grouping there's a whole lot of mechanisms in human socialization wherein the person that you're really dealing with is is 
is not the everyone, right? The person you care the most about is going to be the one. And so let's not pretend, let's not be dishonest by saying that the many matter more than the one if we're never going to live that way. And and I guess the less cynical and the third way to look at it, and I'll, I'll put this out to all of you guys as a compliment to this, is I don't think, I pretty firmly believe that you can't really extract subjectivity from ethical decision-making. Like, you can't take yourself out of the equation. You can't say, well, if there were, if we were operating in a total vacuum and everybody were the same and I had no vested interest, how would things go? And the reason you can't do it is because your hypothetical situation will not remove your vested interest. It will follow elements of your vested interest. You think you can rip your vested interest out of your understanding of a situation, but because we live in a subjective frame of reference, you can't. And the consequence of this is if the CIA, if there's people in the CIA who are really comfortable with torturing one guy in order to save like a whole bunch of people, uh, on, on a certain level, they're okay with torturing that guy. It's part of their subjective reality. And in that sense, it's going to, it's going to prevent them from being objective. Uh, in fact, they are always going to be prevented from being objective. No one is ever really fully objective. And as such, the way that you act subjectively reflects the way that you act objectively. And so if you were to think, well, these are people who are okay with torturing individual people, but in the long run, they make things better, I would suggest that perhaps in the long run, things might actually be worse <laughs> because the way in which they act from their own perspective is going to inform the way in which they act within the fiction of their own perspective not existing. Um, I don't know. Uh, is that, that, that's, is how, that a, that's how you get to the syndicate and the apostles, right? That's the whole, like... Um, um, uh, you know, the, the, the mean, uh, ends justify the means, um, and that's how you get. Uh, I mean, just to really uh, say the the thing that's obvious is on everyone's head is uh, torture, Iraq War, so on and so forth, right? All these sort of you know crimes against humanity. Uh, that's not the way to win. I mean, there's like it's a, a the, the telling uh, exchange between um, Ethan and um, and the big guy whose name is escaping me. Right? That's not who we are, Ethan. <laughs> right, Maybe it's, right. who, it's who we should be. They're play acting there, of course, but that is um, them also acting out the moral conflict of the movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that who we are and who we should be is is getting a little bit closer to what the movie is actually about. But I'm interested. But I mentioned this idea of this this tableau of Tom Cruise on the motorcycle riding backwards, you know, into traffic, right? Riding on, at high speed into traffic against the flow of all the cars with just a iron steel gaze in front of him, pounding his way forward. And this notion that, well, you know, this act of defiance of the way that everybody else is doing things is manifest somewhat in the way in which he refuses to torture people and and he refuses to do what the cia does and insists on putting on rubber masks and extracting confessions through trickery and uh relationship building right as opposed to through sodium pentothal and uh grabbing people's lapels and telling them that there's no time right now so where's the device right uh it's interesting that him him screaming against the tide is part of what's attractive about this character and and seems to be somewhat near a sort of secondary Klingon moral heart of the movie uh, that is not beating with the same force of the first bun, but were the first one to kick out due to a phaser blast <laughs> might keep, keep work alive for the emergency surgery. Now his spine replaced. Anyway, <laughs> Matt, I think I've one of those Star Trek. 
circle. Yeah, one of those backup, one of those damn backup systems. And if you haven't seen the movie, uh, the Syndicate and the Apostles are organizations of supervillains or supervillainous organizations, organizations of moderate villains where the villainous whole is greater than the sum of the villainous parts. Uh, and, and everybody is. I mean, I don't know. It's There is kind of a great man theory of villainy in these movies in the way that there is a, a great man theory of heroes, uh, heroism. But there was a lot there, so I have a lot of reactions to it. So everyone go on mute and take a drink of water because uh, <laughs> let me let me dive in. I think also, that, uh, spo- spoilers, right? Spoilers for Mission Impossible Fallout? Yeah, sorry. Did I not? Okay. I, I thought I had said that earlier. But yeah, yeah, we, yeah we, we put it out there. Good. Yeah, anyway, so yeah, go at, the, at this point. Um, so... I think there's a distinction, an ethical distinction to be made between a trolley problem type scenario, which doesn't really happen in real life, and a Star Trek three scenario, which is do we mount a rescue mission? Right? Those are different those are different sort of things. And so when Ethan decides to help Ving Rames, uh instead of securing the the device first, right? Or the the what, the three balls, you know? Um He's that it's a it's a slightly different thing, right? Because the the people aren't in imminent danger, and Ving Rhames is in imminent danger. There's also like a special duty to people you know or care about, or people who are close to you. Um, it, we wouldn't consider it all that ethically problematic if a parent wanted to save their own child from a building before another child. Given you know all other things, all other things being equal, and you can only get one at a time, right? That 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 wouldn't horrify us. I mean, it would be tragic, you know, but. It, it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't make us question the very fabric of who we are. So, like, I, you know, I get the 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 Ving Rhames uh, decision and I feel like it's a little I feel like it's a little overblown. But the the other aspect of this, right, is the the sense in which Ethan Hunt is sort of a Christ figure, right, is like a sort of sacrificial figure where he's he's. He does all of these things. He suffers. He gets hit. He, you know, and and this is kind of wrapped up in the idea of Tom Cruise doing his own stunts. You know, that like Tom Cruise is actually running on that bridge. Like Tom Cruise is actually doing those motorcycle stunts. And by the way, those bike stunts are impressive, right? Like no helmet even. And you can see a little bit how it's cut together. You can see how it's shot to make it look a little bit uh more death-defying than it is, and and it's done. I mean, they're done in super-controlled single pieces. But even even considered like as individual things to do on a motorcycle, right? Like it, even just considered as an etude for two wheels. You know, it's it's very 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 cool. Um, all of this, all of the stuff that he does, and there was press in this movie that they he hurt himself and they had to shut it down while he recovered and all of this. Right? This is this is sort of Tom Cruise suffering for our sins. So what what if you had to torture yourself, right, for all of eternity so that everyone else could could live with peace and harmony? That seems to be a lot more uh, a lot closer to the um 
to the moral heart of this film and to what is actually what is actually going on rather than a you know rather than a trolley problem type scenario where it's like well you can throw the switch and and save the one or save the the millions tens of tens hundreds of millions i suppose or billions in this in this particular uh in the particular scenario that the the film contemplates where you detonate a a um a nuclear bomb at the source at the water source for the indian subcontinent right that uh you you you're not uh you're not actually doing a trolley problem the question more is that who 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 are you willing to sacrifice and the answer is me right the the ethan hunt is willing to sacrifice ethan hunt and the idea is that like that's the only sort of morally defensible um position like i'll take my oxygen off to give it to someone else you know uh i'll suffer physically so that others may uh, uh simply live um this is the th- this is the the thing i don't know it, it strikes me that that's that that's closer and that that's a lot um and the emphasis on like mission should you choose to accept it a, a phrase that's repeated several times with dripping sarcasm throughout throughout the movie the idea being you know a you volunteered for this and b I, you were dumb to volunteer for this you know and that uh that it's not um it's not uh wise to to do that so at the end when uh, the character Erica Sloan says you're what you're willing to put the one ahead of the many it's uh it's you're willing to sacrifice the one yourself um in favor of literally anybody else i mean in favor of like a, a kitten in a tree if if it came to that and it, i don't know it strikes me that that's closer to the moral heart of the movie yeah, it, it's interesting that the one main character who does die, and I'm, I, that I can think of, there might be somebody that I'm missing uh, off the top of my head, who is a good guy who dies is Alec Baldwin as the head of the Impossible Mission Force, who dies in the line of duty, stabbed right in the dark, in, you know, dies an anonymous death underground and, you know, in, in the darkness. And that while something like the death of the French policewoman who's basically a parking meter attendant, but who has the courage because she believes in her duty to stand up for justice, even though it probably isn't going to have any sort of consequential benefit to anybody because they're just going to kill her. Right. But she has the courage to do it and it ends up changing things, which is, which is good. But, uh, but she does, it would be bad if she were to die, but it's okay for Alec Baldwin to die. And the reason is that Alec Baldwin here is in charge in a similar way and on a higher level than Ethan Hunt is in charge. And so in the same way that Ethan Hunt in going into the field puts his life on the line for humanity as a whole and then microcosmically for every individual human that he comes across. Right. right. It's, it, this is not about prioritizing. Let me be clear. It's not about prioritizing your friends over the rest of the world. This is about like dealing with each individual person that you come across in a in a consistent way that reflects your values. This is the idea that Ethan Hunt doesn't just I'm going to call him Ethan Hawk at some point. So I might as well get out of here. <laughs> Ethan Hawk doesn't just let the plutonium go to save his friend. He Ethan Ethan Hawk will also like endeavor upon, you know, a high-speed boat chase later on. It's not in the movie, but like he'll endeavor upon a high boat speed boat chase later on because he stopped to save some random person, right? And, and so there is it's funny because there is an aggregation 
Well, I would say that there is a summation, but not an aggregation. There's a sum total at the end of the day when you can look at all the people that Ethan Hawke, Ethan Hawke saved, and uh, and it's a pretty high number. But the way he did it is uh, on a case-by-case basis choosing to save them, not by strategically deciding ahead of time which ones were worth saving and which ones weren't worth saving. And Alec Baldwin has to make the same decision. And when the time comes, you know, it, yeah, he's removed from the action most of the time because it's his job and it's important for him to be accessible and, and out of and uh, able to communicate with multiple agents at once. But when the time comes, he's putting his life on the line the same way that uh, Ethan Hunt does. And so when he dies, it's heroic and it's appropriate and all, even good, right? I mean, obviously people are, it's sad. And it's a bummer. Uh, when, when he turned the tables on Lane, my, my movie theater erupted into applause. I don't know about yours. But um, or when he turned the tables on, uh, not on Lane, on um, Mustache Jones, on Walker. Walker was not, in fact, in Texas Ranger. Yeah. But, uh, but close enough, right? We can call uh, it, I mean, he looks like Freddie Mercury to me in this movie, Henry Cavill. <laughs> like, uh, so we can either call him, uh, you can call him uh, Mustache Jones, you can call him uh, Porn Stash, you can call, uh, well, no, he's not, uh, Porn Stash is Porn Stash, that's its, uh, that's its own thing. Uh, I guess you can call him uh, uh, Freddie Mercury if you want to. Um, so going back to Alec, before we leave Alec Baldwin uh, and his uh, noble death behind, um, contrast that, of course, with the CIA director, right, who very notably FaceTimes into that meeting. She does not <laughs> she does not put herself on the line at all. She sends all these other people out there to do her dirty work. She doesn't necessarily come out as the villain at the end. I think she's just there to provide that kind of institutional contrast to uh, that highly personalized approach that Ethan Hunt takes. Is that a fair way to describe what, uh, what the, the CIA director Angela Bass's role is? Yeah, because movies like this and this movie felt like a Bond movie in a lot of ways. Yep. Movies like this movie, like the Bond movies, like where the CIA shows up at the end, like in Goldeneye and many others. They're not really meant to be saying that, hey, we should really force the government to operate like this. Right. It's like everybody in the government should totally become a rogue agent who follows their own conscience over their orders. The idea is that you, in the context of your life, wherein you are surrounded by institutions and institutional people who seem very often to not give a darn, you have the opportunity to act in this way and think in this way. And if you do act and think in this way, you're not wrong. Right. Like this, the CIA director will eventually be like, I get it. You know, you're one of the good ones, even if they seem to live by an entirely different set of values, which is an interesting way of attempting. It's an interesting attempt to reconcile the various um, intellectual and personal strains of Cold War thinking. Right. Individualism versus, you know, wartime mobilization, which are not really uh, uh, coherent uh, concepts to be reconciled with one another. Like we want everybody independently and autonomously to submit for military training, right? It's not really like how these, although that's how it works in Casablanca, right? But it's not how it works in real life. Uh, I mean, I guess there's volunteers, but there's bigger social forces, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, there's, anyway, I mean, there is there's also kind of a post 9-11 moral question, I think, that that uh, ironically has a, has deep roots in the American psyche. Like I've talked a lot on this podcast in, in previous episodes about the idea of a cowboy uh, as the person who defends society, but whose defense um, ipso facto excludes him from the society. Right. And right. the the like the paradigmatic image of this for me is the end of John Ford's My Darling Clementine, when Wyatt Earp rides out of town uh, and Clementine stays 
um, stays in town and the camera stays in town, right? Like we're in society. Clementine, the woman, stays in the town. Uh, Wyatt Earp has to leave. He's he has to be expelled because you can't withstand that level of violence in community. But sometimes that level of violence has to be brought to bear. Uh, yeah. on behalf of the community. And that's, uh, you know, that's a paradox because that's, that's a little bit like, okay, if you have one, <laughs> if you need, <laughs> if you need to have one CIA torturer, right? So that 7 billion people <laughs> can live. Are you willing to do that? Provided that they, you know, ride out of town on their horse at the, uh, um, at the end of the movie. And so the idea of like, this this sort of figure, like uh, Ethan Hunt is a, is a, Ethan Hawke is a cowboy. I was just thinking, like Julie Delpy has a nuclear bomb on a train headed to Paris. Ethan Hawke must uh, disarm it by falling in love with her before sunrise. The I mean, like it would be really funny to take a lot of Ethan Hawke kind of romantic comedies or dramas and and put the kind of like Marvel third act world ending stakes um, on them. But uh, but Pete, you said this isn't. I mean, I mean, to me, the, the actual plot of this movie, here's how I, I discerned this. I looked at what was in the opening credits sequence, <laughs> right? And I think, like, there is, there is, like, literary theory and there's some popular stuff that I've read about genre being a contract with... Uh, with an audience, right? And the, it's a promise about the kind of thing that you're going to get. And, and like, the the... Trailers write checks. Very often they write checks that the movie can't cash. But I think in a credit sequence, right, one that's that's presumably meant to get you excited for the movie that, that you're about to see, like it's the movie in microcosm or the high points, the good points, the things you're going to like about this movie in microcosm with this kind of like to, to make you salivate with glee to say, I can have this. I can have this any second now. They're making an agreement. They're making promises. And the promise of this movie was uh, kinesis and sensation, right? Like, there's going to be uh, exuberant motion, and you're going to feel something about it. It's going to, like, have a a quasi-physical response in you, which I did. I mean, there were some really good stunt scenes. And I, you know, the fact that they're practical makes a difference. Like, it just just feels different. There's a small digression. There's an essay by the playwright Sarah Rule called something like On Sword Fighting or something like that in a book of essays. And she talks about the difference on stage in a real theater with real people between having a sword fight in like a classical play or something like that and in a modern play having characters point guns at each other. The sword fight contains an element of actual peril and that that changes the experience. It's different. It feels different to be in that room. Now, it's not that someone's going to get sliced, but, you know, someone could get actually hurt. Could get, I, I did a stage fight once and got very badly bruised. I, I you know, knocked into something uh, and my sword got wedged between uh, the, a wall of the set and me and just, like, gave me a big old, big old bruise in my side that I, uh, I wore as a badge of honor for the rest of the like four or five weeks that that play was running. But you know, so, so that, and that that's possible. And that's it, it, you can sense it, you can feel it. And the guns don't, uh, the guns don't, don't have that sort of thing. Cause you know, it's fake through and through the, um, at least, I mean, with competent fight direction and things like this, God, I, I hope it's always fake through and through the, the uh, contrast here is like between a, a CGI superhero epic where there's just, you know, 
computer generated people punching each other for 20 minutes at the in the the last act of the movie and this where like there's a you know that motorcycle stuff was incredible that helicopter stuff which i think they really did was incredible that halo jump stuff was pretty cool which i think they really did was pretty cool the uh the close quarters fight in the bathroom was pretty cool like uh and and so to me it sort of it sort of delivered on its promise now that's all surface level pete i think you probably have an idea of a, a more th- thematic set of set of concerns that the the movie was concerned with but do you do you would you concede or stipulate that at least on the surface that was the check that the movie wanted to write and it it cashed it with room to spare oh yeah i would add to it rather than contradict it yeah sure yeah and so what i would add and of course, this is this is overthinking extraordinaire, right? We're gonna be we're gonna be doing a little overthinking of uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, but we overthought the skyscraper by the rock, so we're fine, right? This movie is more substantial than that. I felt like when the opening of the movie, and I'm thinking I'm thinking in particular also of the uh, the scene of watching the mission assignment, right? The scene of watching the mission assignment, which is the sort of literally exposition machine that explains what's going to happen through the rest of the movie. Oh, the book. You know, talk about the book. Yeah. 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 And, um, I felt like that made a promise, not just that this was going to be a kinetic movie, but that this was going to be a tactile movie and that there was going to be a case made that, uh, this sort of, we've said that, you know, the star Wars world is an analog world with space age technology. Right. But that this was going to be an old timey kind of spy movie in which things had texture and feeling and weight and in which the things that the spies did to each other were going to have the kind of uh, aroma and character, not just necessarily of nostalgic reference, but of form and and action and emotion and theme that you would think of with regards to a 60s spy television show or, you know, a really, really good Bond movie. As distinct from something like and I'm not saying really, really good rather than old, because I think Casino Royale does this too, right? The, the Daniel Craig Casino Royale is doing the same thing it, with showing Bond crashing through the walls in its opening action sequence, where it's like, this is going to be a movie that feels things. And and like when you're going to be able to see the hero kind of come into textures and sights and sounds, uh, and that's going to be different than the hero flying above everything and kind of ascendant over everything in real apotheosis. Right. This is going to be if, if, if all action heroes are some sort of model of intersection between the human and the divine. This is the divine made human, not the human made divine. Right. This is like the uh, this is the sort of, you know, Christ is all man rather than Christ is all God. Right. Is that like he bleeds? He gets kicked in the face. Uh, you know, sometimes he falls off of a cliff onto a conveniently placed ledge. But but the point being that like uh, that this was going to be a spy movie that had suspense that had a sort of artfulness and a little bit of reserve, which it does, believe it or not, despite the fact that it's super duper crazy. Uh, it does have moments of extended silence. It has dialogue free scenes. It was shot on film, which is crazy. 35 millimeter film. Right. Uh, as opposed to with a George Lucas super deluxe, uh, you know, prequel vision, digital snapshot machine or whatever. Um, and, and yeah, all this stuff, I think, combines to give the movie a slightly different ethos overall. And I read a few critiques that suggested that the movie was really rooted in the stunts and didn't have 
a kind of symbolic or thematic artistry in its visual composition. And I would disagree with that, but maybe that's just because I'm really used to looking for that while also watching people uh, handbrake a mid nineties BMW backwards down a flight of stairs. <laughs> <laughs> Like, but to, to put it the long and the short of it, I read one review before going to see this movie that said that this movie was the greatest action movie ever made. Uh, I don't think that that's I don't think that's an indefensible statement, but I don't think I would jump to that conclusion. Yeah, right? that, like, that, that uh, assertion is false. Yeah, exactly. It's like what maybe one person really, really likes it and they want to defend it. Great. I think the movie is good enough to have that spot, you know, next to the cheese fries at three o'clock in the morning. Right. Like like it's 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 okay to be in the conversation, though. No one will believe you or agree with you. Uh, But but when I read this, you know, my fiance turns to me and they said, did they see all the Fast and the Furious movies? (laughs) Right. And so it's like, yeah. And then having watched the movie, I was like, oh, no, they did. Right. Whoever made this movie knows what's exciting about modern action movies that are accomplishing things thematically. Anyway, um, I guess I guess what I would say and what I just said, right, which I'll repeat, is there is a scene in this movie in which there is a BMW, I believe it's an old 5 Series, which Tom Cruise, he drives it backwards, Tokyo drifting, handbraking, skidding down a flight of stairs before spinning out into like a 270-degree turn and continuing to evade the cops. That car is roughly contemporaneous with the first Mission Impossible movie. Sure. Right? Which is like, oh, right? This is, there's a direct connection there. Now the car is old-fashioned. Now the car is a classic. Now the car is an antique and looks silly next to, like, the fancier cars that everybody's driving around. But this is going to be a movie that tries to demonstrate that the way that that these sort of tools were implemented has a moral character as well as a utility character and aesthetic character, that all these things are connected. And and so that's, that's, I think, one respect in which the movie expands on the idea of being kinetic, Unto the point of being tactile and thematic and symbolic. There are others, but that that's one that jumps to mind. I don't know. What do you think, Mark? Does any of this ring true for you at all? Yeah, I'm feeling that um, definitely. I think you said there, Pete, about the kineticness um, and how effective everything was. Um, is it the greatest action movie ever? I mean, it's have they seen Terminator 2, Judgment Day? <laughs> um, right. No, perhaps not. Um, I, I guess let's use this. If, what better time than any to talk about the helicopter sequence, right? right? Um, we, we've mentioned it before. Um, and you know, as Matt said, I, I, I believe it is one of the one of the very few, if not the only, like major helicopter dogfight scene in a major movie. Um, you know, it felt super, super real because Tom Cruise freaking learned how to fly a helicopter to do this, so he's actually at the controls um, for this. So, I mean, viscerally, just completely delivered on the goods. Felt just like a, a, just the edge of your seat type of thing. Gasps, like the, my audience was literally gas, audibly gasping multiple times during this sequence. I, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, but uh, Pete, like, tell us a little bit then about like that thematic connection um, be- between the the thrills and and what it might mean. Well, the idea that like. Henry Cavill is leaning out the side of a helicopter firing basically a Tommy gun yep. at Tom Cruise while he's flying his helicopter and the whole pull up, pull up, pull up. Matt, do you feel like you want to comment on that a little bit? Well, uh, it's, you sound- no, I mean, it, I, I do. It's, it's interesting, right? Like the, the, there are a couple of things like I was put in mind of Top Gun. Whenever Tom Cruise flies through the air, I'm put in mind of Top Gun, right? Like, and the idea of like Tom Cruise, you know, his hand grasping a stick between his legs. Hmm. Right. Uh, you know, bullets flying direct straight out 
assertively flying, right? And the thing, the thing I kept thinking is that in in Top Gun, Tom Cruise brought the fire, right? Here he's trying to prevent the fire, right? He's trying to quiet the. trying to quiet the fire but you know with the tommy gun thing with the sort of like what is it grenade weird grenade launcher thing weird machine gun i'm not actually sure i don't know a lot about those kinds of weapons so or any kind really and and so i I probably best i can tell the the gun that mustache jones is firing it's like uh like what you see in the vietnam war movies like a very heavy machine gun which is usually just like mounted and attached to the side of the helicopter except that Mustache Jones, because he's huge and brute force, like manhandles it and uses it to shoot at, at Tom Cruise. It looks super cool like that. I'm glad in this movie that they let Tom Cruise be short, right? Because he's not a tall man. And like the idea that it actually makes a good uh, contrast between him and Freddie Mercury, right? Like because Freddie towers over him, uh, right? Like he, he's a, he is the champion. He is the champion. No time for Ethan, because he is the champion of the height contest. And that's, uh, it's something like, you know, Tom Cruise is often like put on a, uh, put on a, an apple crate with his, um, uh, oh, my, uh, Echo product decided to, to pipe up now. I don't know what I said that sounded like her name. Um, but the, uh, He's usually put on a, on an apple crate with his female co-stars, for example, so that he can come up um, to the height of the beautiful statuesque women he is routinely paired with, and and he was allowed to be a little more vulnerable or to have his to have his masculinity and to have his strength be expressed in a in a slightly different way, which I think is appropriate for Ethan because there's like a wiliness or just a kind of audacity maybe to to that makes him. Um, that makes him special rather than than brute force. But I'm getting away from the the helicopter uh, chase. Bring us home, Pete. What what do you think about it? Oh, about the helicopter chase and this idea of it being tactile. I mean, so there's another dimension to all this, which I saw as even on top of that, the real symbolic heart of the movie, even above the promise that the movie makes about what you're going to watch. Right. So when you watch this movie, you're going to watch a satisfying action movie where exciting things happen. They're going to have a higher degree of, of verisimilitude and realism because we are going to be using practical effects and we're going to be putting our big star in harm's way. That's like level one. Right. Level two is, by the way, we're also going to be using old fashioned technology to shoot this movie as well as for the characters in the movie to use it. It is the most gadget light Mission Impossible movie by a large margin. Uh, and uh, and it's going to be it's going to have this sort of analog feel that's going to be associated with old spy movies. And the behavior of the characters is also going to be invested in, in this way. People are going to act like spies. They're not just going to act like it's not like Pierce Brosnan where he's just I'm just the coolest guy in the world and I have an Uzi and a tuxedo. Right. And it's like I just bungee jumped into the middle of a bathroom and shot 10 guys right it's all effortless and it works for those movies some of them but that's not that's not the ethos that they're going to for with this movie uh, the next level of it and these are sort of incre- these are sort of decreasing levels of kind of usefulness to the audience like and increasing levels of kind of esoteric thematic uh, layering is that this is a movie that is has a couple of key symbols that tie it all together and the big symbols, are, and they're all uh, articulated in the scene where Walker and Ethan are uh, getting ready to halo jump out of the plane. And they do that little moment where he puts on the mask, you know, Walker puts the mask on, but he doesn't have his oxygen on, and so his visor fogs up, right? And then Ethan has the visor on, and it's clear, crystal, right? And uh, Ethan tells 
Walker, you need to – there's no atmosphere up here. You need to turn on your air in order to breathe or you're going to die, right? You're going to black out. And, uh, and the idea is that there's this notion of do you have air or not? Uh, are you kind of breathless or not? There's a lot of people in this movie who are breathless or strangled. And it's all very, again, tactile and analog and also, like, thrilling and feels real, right? When Simon Pegg is hanging there, that's intense, right? And that's like – I mean, I don't think they actually hanged Simon Pegg. Um, but presumably he did that stunt, right? Uh, and, I mean, maybe he had a box under him the whole time. But that hits your ethos, right, Matt? And it hits what I'm talking about. But it also hits this level of, like, people gain and lose their air, and they also gain and lose their face. And people are obscured a lot. There's a lot of darkness in this movie. There's a lot of people who are strategically shot from behind at thematically important moments. And uh, and there's this notion that, uh, the spy game kind of requires people to do this to each other and that there's sort of a necessity that's driving all of this. Uh, it's the necessity of we have to jump out of this plane and you're going to have to keep your air on or your visor is going to go foggy. But you know what? At some point I may have to turn my air off and my visor might go foggy. So the helicopter scene kind of pulls us all together because you're in the, the rarefied high altitude of the Himalayas, I guess, right? Unless it's some other minor range in the general vicinity of Kashmir or Nepal, right? I don't know exactly where they are uh, in, in the very, in the uh, sort of rocky birthplace of the uh, uh, Indian subcontinental tectonic rifts. But uh, they're up way up where there's no air, right? They are coming in and out of cloud and smoke and fire. So you see them or don't see them. And uh, and there's this notion, uh, I mean, you even get to the point where Walker's face is horribly disfigured and this sense of like, do you, are you keeping your face? Are you losing your face? People are shoving their head outside the helicopter into the wind. And then this is all balanced with the idea that that these are helicopters where you have to, like, pull the stick and jam the control. Right. And and, uh, and that there's a there's a real tactile feeling to driving this helicopter. The whole thing that like there's like a Porkins scenario. Right. Pull up, pull up, pull up. Very old fashioned. And so there's there's the level of daring do of the fact that Tom Cruise is flying this freaking helicopter and this is crazy. And they actually have a rope tied to this thing. And uh, Tom Cruise, I guess, is climbing that rope. Did he really climb that rope, Matt? Yeah, I, that I don't know. You know, I, I mean, mean I, I'm, I'm betting it was really Tom Cruise because his J hook was awful. Like his his actual rope climbing technique was was like subpar. It was it was good but not great. Right? You feel like, like, and you feel like a, a trained stunt performer would really have that on point, right? Hundred percent. Tom Cruise was using too much arms. He was using his arms to climb the rope too much, and he wasn't getting his a good hook with his feet on the rope. Uh. He would have gone up much faster. But uh, but the point being that like you've got the daring do. You've got the tactile feel, and then you've also got the idea of there being, like, no air, and there being, like, obscuring and revealing of faces, and, and sort of snow and fog and smoke and fire, uh, and, uh, and all of this sort of brought together, and I mean, I hate to say it, like, this is where the movie gets, I mean, I hate to say it, because it's where the movie gets actually quite similar to Skyscraper, <laughs> which is kind of weird, right? Which is like, this is yet another movie, which is made for a, like, largely, uh, it's made for an international global audience. They know they have a huge audience in Asia, and it's another movie about two dragons fighting over a flaming pearl in the heights, while the the Yang dragons, who are men, fight in the clouds over the flaming pearl and the women, the, the yin women who are in the valley fight over extinguishing the fire. 
right? It's like the same dynamic as Skyscraper. So it's like this, it's like, it takes this turn into like Taoist spirituality, which we're seeing now. I think I'm going to start clocking this. Every global action movie we see, how much Taoist symbolism is going to be in the third act, right? Um, now, because, it, now, yeah, I don't to, know. Sorry, to, to, be, to be fair, I mean, we can kind of pattern fit it into Taoism because of the Chinese economics of, these, of movie making. Um, but I mean, there's just app Taoism and the Chinese influence aside, like there is something that is very uh, ingrained in Western culture as well, too, about um, the, the gender dynamic, the split here and um, the, the women on the ground, right, who are doing something a little bit more sort of healing and restorative while the men are fighting it out. That I don't think you'd have to say is like is is particularly Chinese about it. I mean, I, I like the theory, though, Pete, don't get me wrong. This is an Alibaba co-production. Right, Alibaba yeah. being like the huge Chinese e-commerce giant, and I guess they're also in the movie business as well too. I mean, um, this is this is about how this isn't really like this isn't like a sinister sort of appropriation, really. This is like a unity of different sorts of mythologies being brought together into a, glo- a global entertainment. Right, this sure, is a movie yeah. that isn't going to be held accountable for appropriation in that respect, and so it gets to act the way that culture acts, rather in the self-conscious way in which moral people act. Uh, as uh, self self proclaimed, but anyway, I, I, I think Henry Cavill is appropriating uh, American mustache culture in the big way. <laughs> I think way, he's right? appropriating nineteenth century German mustache culture. Actually, <laughs> wait, go on. Oh, I mean, because you were saying he looked like what? I, I was thinking. I was trying to think whether he looked more like a young. He doesn't look that much like a young Otto von Bismarck, but just this. But so Henry Cavill specifically, what I'm thinking is that Henry Cavill is a very tall soldier with a sort of trim mustache. Uh, in the history, in sort of military history, right? I would associate somebody like that with the with the Praetorian Guard, the Prussian Praetorian Guard, right? Which is the uh, they were called they were still called the Praetorian Guard, right? So, okay, we'll take a um, we'll we'll, we'll take a little a little quick detour, right? <laughs> so, so in ancient Rome, right? There was an imperial guard called the Praetorian Guard, which was reserved for the protection of the royal family, but ended up being highly involved in politics. And uh, it was it was, to an extent it got very corrupt. There were lots of problems, but it was a huge political force as well as a military force. And it's been imitated. It's not the first institution like this. Maybe the immortals of Persia are sort of similar, having a sort of elite crew that is responsible for protecting the leader. When you get to German history, uh, you get to this point where uh, and I, I, you know, I always thought of them as a uh, as a Praetorian guard, but they might have had a different. I think they might. Have, oh, is it, it was the was it the Potsdam guard? Oh man, I'm I'm totally blanking on the name of it. So if anybody remembers the name of this elite guard of German soldiers, um, yes, the Potsdam Giants. Uh, they were Prussian Infantry Regiment Number Six, and they were composed of taller than average soldiers. Their regiment was formed in 1675 and dissolved in 1806 after the Prussian defeat to Napoleon. And this idea that you would uh, they were nicknamed the Tall Guys or the Giant Guard of Potsdam. Uh, so I was confusing Praetoria with Potsdam because it's a similar sort of function. Uh, but the idea that like we found the tallest guy. And he's very he's sort of very put together in an old fashioned way. And he is going to be assigned to guard this mission. That to me, that to me spoke to German military history, not like American glam rock history. Uh, and, <laughs> and, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm reaching a little bit too far here. But there was definitely something about Henry Cavill's character that felt inauthentic, which was by design because he was a, a terrorist mole. <laughs> and everybody figured it out pretty fast, which I think was really appreciated because if nobody was going to be able to figure that out, that was going to be really unfortunate. He basically Clark Kent's this movie, right? Like they hired Clark Kent for a reason. They hired Clark Kent to play a fake 
American soldier uh, because he's so good at playing a fake reporter uh, when he's really a Kryptonian. And here in this case, he's really a militant atheist terrorist, I guess, is the idea. Um, I'm not sure like that. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about the religious stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In this yeah. movie, right? Because the nuclear scientist, um, he has his own personal weird stuff going on, uh, which is only loosely connected to the broader plot, right? And at the beginning, um, you know, he's hoodwinked into thinking that uh, he has successfully nuked Jerusalem, Mecca, and Rome, right? <laughs> As sort of an attack on world religions. And then, um, you know, so that there's, uh, it's not super explicit, but, um, you know, the, well, I guess one of the terror organizations is called the Apostles, um, kind of as a subversion of the Judeo, of the, of the Christian idea of the Apostles. Um, and then later on in the movie, Tom Cruise um, runs through St. Paul's Cathedral, right, and interrupts a funeral while he's being chased by atheist assassins. Um, so is that just kind of window dressing along the way? Uh, or is there something, is, is this movie saying something a little bit more substantive about religion and its role in society? you got to think it is, right? Um, because there's so much of this idea of Tom Cruise as the Christ figure in this movie. <laughs> you got to think that it's making a proposition. It's making the unconventional proposition. Let's posit this right now. That Here's the hypothesis. The movie is making the rather unconventional proposition that in the dichotomy in modern life between atheism and orthodox religion— Orthodox religion is the more individualistic of the two, right? And the idea being that, like, if you operate from a standpoint of respecting tradition, and that's what ties it together, right? You operate from the standpoint of respecting tradition. You operate from the standpoint that individuals follow behavior models on an individual basis, and they follow rules that are set aside for them for proper behavior, and that this is the way that society at large arrives at collective moral responsibility is through the rules that individual people follow or fail to follow, that this is a sort of sin model for morality rather that versus a sort of— mechanized right uh consequentialist uh idea of like people are expendable we'll make this cost and we'll reap this benefits that the phenomenology of what collective action is able to achieve exists on sort of a different level of understanding than the actions of individual people and the movie seems to be making the case that this idea of kind of inhuman phenomenology is rooted in modern institutionalism and is hostile to religion uh and 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 that the idea of individual moral responsibility as a model for the way that everybody ought to act is the religious attitude but also the individualist attitude um which i guess not strictly individualist because you're expected to sacrifice yourself for everybody else so it's this sort of counter individualism I'm not sure. I don't know, Matt. What do you think? About some that? some people are expected to sacrifice. I mean, is it? Yeah. Do you feel like it's a general obligation? Um, not an obligation. No, because it's not an obligation, right? It's it's a uh, it's a it's a calling. Yeah, it's a vocation. It's a mission. Should you choose to accept it? Right. I was I, that was just That's on right, the tip. Of, that was just on the tip of my tongue when you when you pointed out the distinction. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just uh, there, well, there is something. There is something to. Uh, there's something quaint, isn't there, about the idea that blowing up the uh, that blowing up the centers of authority for these religions would really stop them, 
right? That that you that the idea that you can like trace the almost as though in a similar way to blowing up the or uh, detonating a nuclear bomb so that you irradiate the water supply that sort of flows out as though religious feeling or religious devotion kind of flows out from uh, from a central place. It's a really kind of pre-modern understanding of religion and and what it is that if you you know if you sort of cut the head off the snake it will it, it will die or i guess i mean i guess the the idea is to uh the idea is to bring about peace through suffering you know which actually is a, a pretty good motto for this movie um, <laughs> another example is when simon Pegg and ilsa when sorry, Benji and Ilsa, I actually remember the names of most of the characters in this movie, which is pretty rare. When Benji and Ilsa are looking for the second nuclear bomb, Benji is convinced that the answer is in the medical facility because he, he's got a lot of radiation signatures and he's got the monitor for the radiation signatures. He's using his beryllium rod. He's using his Geiger counter or whatever. He's convinced that the answer to their problems is in the medical facility. But Ilsa, who has a little bit more of a, of a, of a connection to the old-fashioned, being a retro 60s spy who meets people in hidden arbor ways and has sort of torrid, torrid sort of maybe affairs with protagonists, which is a very sort of 60s spy thing to do. She knows to go into the village, right? And the village has traditional agriculture, uh, traditional architecture, right? It has a, it has a, an extinct disease. It is riddled with an ancient disease, uh, not ancient, but hundreds of years old at this point, right? Uh, or at least a hundred years old. I, don't, I actually don't know when smallpox was generally eradicated. It's been eradicated, right? There's no smallpox anymore. Am I making that up? It exists. That, like, they have I think, it in a lab. Yeah, I think it exists only in in a lab. And like the, there's been a lot of questions about whether the good of the many uh, outweighs the good of the few viruses. It's actually only been about fifty years since the last case, and then it's just the seventies. So that's like yeah, forty forty years since the last uh, smallpox cases, which is really not that long, and which is kind of really scary. But the idea being that like. They have to go to the place where the people are living in a traditional way and dealing with traditional problems in order to confront the truth. And in that sense, because I, w- I wouldn't necessarily say that it's just religion that is motivating it, that there's that it's religion as a shorthand word for a phenomena related to tradition and individual moral choice and the idea that you should make individual moral choices against the framework of tradition, which is, I guess, one way that you could define what a religion is, maybe, though it's not a sufficiently broad or robust definition to encapsulate all of that, which is commonly understood to be religion, uh, is, is what I would suppose. Because also there's the moment on the cliff, right, where after, uh, after Walker Bismarck Ranger uh, has that whatever that long German word is for get your forehead impaled by a steel hook before falling 40 feet onto an exploding helicopter. I think it's called like hook der boomen fliegen flocken. Uh, <laughs> that sounded more Swedish chef. Than, yeah, that's true. I, I, I didn't stick the landing, but then again, neither did he. Uh, and, uh, after that happens, you know, Ethan Ethan Hawke is, stand, is standing on that convenient ledge that's been placed there for fifty something Hollywood actors to climb on, and he and he and there's that blinding white light, which you're led to believe is the annihilation of all the life in the Indian subcontinent, but is in fact Tom Cruise staring directly at the sun. Yep. 
And of course, you've read your Wallace Stevens, right? So I, I can't directly quote it, but can you uh, can you can you directly quote I, it? I, you know, Wallace Stevens was never never my guy. The which one? The the Blackbird? Oh uh, no no no! Or no the I was, Snowman. I was saying begin Ephib by perceiving the idea of this invention, this invented world, the inconceivable idea of the sun. You must become an ignorant man again and see the sun again with an ignorant eye and see clearly the idea of it. Never suppose an invented mind is a source of this idea, nor for that mind compose a voluminous master folded in his fire. This is from the uh, beginning of Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction, which is the only Wallace Stevens I ever cite on the podcast, uh, which is which should say something. Oh, yeah. um, I don't must- do the idea of order at key west oh, i did that in an article once but the idea being that like the sun is an antecedent to understanding uh that is framed as religious thoughts is what, what wallace stevens is kind of positing here but he's also positing that sort of fiction and storytelling and myth and all the things that society engages on in sort of the poetical project are related to this idea of the sun, which is also the thing that inspired the various sorts of prophets through history. And this idea that, like, Tom Cruise's engagement by staring into the sun, he may very well believe that this is his clarity. This is his this is his Dianetics, right? This is the metaphor for the exploding volcano on the cover of that mass market paperback. Um, and, of course, this is the most close to pro-Scientology this podcast has ever gotten, and I assure you, we do not endorse Scientology. Uh, but but it does seem to be located in this movie against a global vocabulary of various world religions, traditions, institutions, everything from, you know, Martin Landau and a spy television show to, you know, like the Dharma, right? It's all over the place. <laughs> but, uh, but there is a confrontation with God in this movie, and it happens on the mountaintop. Right. And, and, and Superman doesn't get to come. Yeah. It's, so. I mean, it is, it is interesting. Like it's a, it's a kind of a, 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 a rising to the overworld rather than a descent into the underworld, which, you know, would be, you would expect to be a feature of the Odyssey. I mean, I guess that the, I want to talk about Homer just for 30 seconds because mm-hmm. the, the first message being in the Odyssey, it was an, uh, it was one where I like, you can, as you can imagine, and I'm sure the same was with, true with both of you, like my ears immediately perked up like oh okay is this a homeric epic is this ethan hunt comes home right like it's not the 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 alec baldwin death actually is pretty close to a homeric death but from the Iliad, not from the Odyssey. The idea of being because he he achieves his his apotheosis as a member of the team, you know, in the field, right, uh, right before he dies, and it's like he he couldn't be more perfect at that moment, and he is cut down in the in the sort of prime of life. It, it, for the Greek warriors, it would be like in the flower of youth, right? That right. that 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 uh, and that there is something, you know. Um, the, and that the the bargain is for that is everlasting fame. You know, you you lose yeah. your life at its most beautiful and wonderful moment. It's 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 kind of a, a a tragic recapitulation of it because, as you pointed out, Pete, it's done underground. It's unknown. It's honestly kind of a minor skirmish in the in the long set of of action scenes. Though it is the one that involves recognition, right? Because uh, you know Angela Bassett's on Facetime and she. <laughs> You know, she understands that uh, that Mustache Jones is not uh, is not who you know. We we thought he was Freddie Mercury. Actually, he's uh, a uh, uh, Bismarckian B- Walker Bismarck Ranger. So 
you know, that, that was a, a sort of Homeric aspect, um, to that. And I guess the, the aspect of kind of like jumping around from place to place is, uh, you know, sort of an odyssey. Um, but in a way, isn't everything. It's interesting to consider that this is a failed odyssey because it's an odyssey where he goes out, you know, he's traveling the world. He goes to the underworld. He comes out of the underworld with kind of some new knowledge of the truth. uh, And he then arrives back to his wife with the suitor and is like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Are you happy, Penelope? Are things going good? And she's like, yup. And he's like, man, I guess, you know, it's a shame we never had a chance to have a Telemachus. And he's like, yup. <laughs> okay, well, if you're happy, I'm happy for you. And she's like, well, I'm happy that you get to be on this Odyssey forever. <laughs> right? Which is like, what? <laughs> this, is, this, is a very, this is a very dark spin on the ending of the Odyssey. The idea, but, but it is, it's from the Western, right? For, for you, the, the paradigmatic image is, uh, you know, Wyatt Earp. For me, it's, you know, John Wayne and the Searchers, how he has to stand on the threshold outside of the home yep. at the end and he can't come in right because because and now when he's, he's also been horribly racist for the entire movie and and this is part of what makes him unacceptable to the rest of society but it's also sort of why he was necessary in the moment that he was necessary before he was uh, discarded uh but yeah yeah it's just like i guess it is kind of a normal sort of story to have homer to have odysseus come all the way home you know brave hell in high water literally Right. In this case, even, you know, high Helen, high helicopter. Right. And and get all the way home and find out that his wife is remarried to the guy who did the Hunger Games <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> he had his eye on the ball and he had a good agent. And that's how he got in there. Right. Uh, it's uh, it's sometimes that's just how it goes. And you go hit the old dusty trail. It's it goes from being, you know, narrated by the Greek chorus to being narrated by Sam Elliott with a cowboy hat. So it's uh, it's a little bit of a different thing than an Odyssey. It's not nearly as faithful a recreation of the Odyssey as Super Mario Odyssey is, which hits the beats much more closely, <laughs> despite having an entire level where you play as foodstuffs, which is very different from what this, happens in the The Odyssey. Searcher's also a, uh, a John Ford movie. By the way, so yeah. it was something that he was uh, that 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 image that Pete's talking about is also about the vertical and the horizontal. The horizontal um, line of the horizon intersected by the two vertical lines of the door, which represent civilization and a right. kind of a boundary between what is uh, ordered and what is wild. You know, right. and and uh, the cowboy belongs to the cowboy belongs to what is wild, and so does Ethan Hawke. Uh, you know, <laughs> he. Uh, <laughs> he he goes off in into uh you know and and as i guess the the final moral of the movie is reality bites no uh, the the final mo- the final moral of the movie is t- the last line right and we can we can hit this before we wrap up the last thing that he says uh in the normal action of this film to uh to ilsa faust and to the team who are standing around him grateful that he's recovered and having sort of camaraderie it's also like i guess uh uh to take another technicolor movie like the searchers it's it's a wizard of oz moment it's like and you were there and you were there and you were there and he sort of comes back he sort of comes back from his uh from his own personal oz having had a uh having had an encounter with with the divine wizard he he laughs and his ribs hurt and he says, don't make me laugh. Right. <laughs> don't make yep. me laugh. The last line of this movie is don't make me laugh. And I feel like 
to a certain extent, that was a, you know, that, that was a mission statement a little bit for, for the, to, should you choose to accept it? Your mission is to not find any of it ironic, right? Like to sort of not to, to, to really, to really assume a Tom Cruise level of sincerity, uh, yeah, you know, to buy into all of this uh, insane plot machinations to uh, maximize the enjoyment of the sensation, right? Yeah. Like if you try to really think about um, the bouncing ball, the nuclear bomb, uh, plutonium bubbles, and where they go, and who's double crossing what, and what the White Widow was doing, and this, that, and the other, it's nonsense, right? It's just like, and it's also, it's not only is it nonsense, it's the same nonsense we've had. Uh, in action movies for decades now, right? With the ticking time bomb and you got to defuse it and the wires and this, that, and the other. The movie doesn't want you to to, uh, experience any irony in that, right? It just uh, puts it up there and says, like, here it is, right? It's not lampshading it at all. It's not winking at you at all. It's just like, this is what we got to do. Got to use the bomb. Tom Cruise got to run super fast and put himself in danger. This is it, guys. Let's do this. Don't make make me laugh, Pete. Don't make me laugh. It's a very funny movie. Is don't, the don't make me laugh. It's a funny movie. Don't it's a movie laugh. where Tom Cruise handbrake turns a '90s BMW backwards down a flight of stairs. Okay, that's but that's <laughs> that's like the, I think that's the thing, right? Like I think that the you're supposed to see it as kind of a gas, but not as humorous. Like Ving Rhames is the comic relief in this movie, and like let's all take a moment and acknowledge how hard it is for Simon Pegg not to be funny because that guy is hilarious. <laughs> but uh, and, and I guess he gets a couple of good like wait I gotta go into the field i don't want to go into the field uh kind of moments but like i pete I, I would i would call that audacious you know but i wouldn't necessarily call it humorous uh and and i i certainly don't think it's intended that way i think it's i think it's intended as a as a kind of like piling of audacity upon audacity until until you can't uh, uh until until you kind of reach dizzying heights of of you know uh, audacious vertigo in thinking about it it makes me think of the lines where they all call the IMF group halloween because it's a grown men playing with rubber masks which it kind of is and so despite the fact that the movie has a lot of jokes in it there's a role in the movie for people who make undercutting jokes at the expense of others. Like when uh, Walker says to Ethan, oh, you lost your you lost your oxygen <laughs> when he's been blacked out and doesn't realize that Ethan has given him his oxygen. Uh, and, oh, I read and, that as he totally realized it and was just being a jerk. Oh, really? Uh, I mean, I feel like it could be both. And I don't want to necessarily believe it's one or the other. I think both is, is great. Uh, but I definitely saw it as the as the former. But this idea that, like, don't undercut me. Don't don't let the laughter don't let it undercut what we're doing, I guess, is maybe if I were to modify it a little bit is that it's not like you're not supposed to laugh at the movie. It's that you're not a lot supposed to uh, you're not supposed to allow the laughter to undercut the people in the movie and what they're doing, like the good people in the movie and what they're doing uh, and then what they're accomplishing. And uh, and and in that because it's like, don't just laugh at the people for being good. 
is is maybe part of part of how I would interpret it because I did laugh a lot at the movie, but but who you laugh at in this movie, like the scene with the Belgian. Uh, I'm assuming that they were they weren't in Belgium where they were they were in they were in Paris, but I assume they were Belgian because of all of the ads for Belgian electronic music around the World Cup. But yeah. the, the dudes in the uh, the dudes in the bathroom who think that there's an orgy happening in the stall when in fact there is an orgy of blood happening in the stall, uh, and they joke and they want in on it. But the way that they're joking is in an undercutting and nasty way, right? They're sort of they're yeah they want in, but they're mostly want to make these guys uncomfortable and they want to like kind of bully them. And that's that's aligned against the. Oh, really? But then they they couple off, put their arms around each other and walk out singing Edith Piaf. I thought that they were I thought that that was some like good natured joshing like, hey, we want in on the orgy rather than, you know, with quasi sadistic sarcasm saying, hey, we want in on your gay orgy in there. You know, again, again, you and I saw two different movies, Pete. I think this is a case of this is your mission if you choose to accept it, which is and and we actually my fiance and I rewatched the first Mission Impossible uh, this afternoon, right before we recorded this, and uh, and there's a lines in that movie to get repeated in this movie. There's a lot from that movie. There's a crazy helicopter situation in that movie with a hook, <laughs> with a steel hook on a steel cable that plays an important role. But uh, though there is not a uh, forehead vermin schnugenschnigen, I did even worse that time. But the point being that one of the lines that gets repeated is don't like walk away, right? Just walk away. And it's what Ethan Hunt says to Sarah, his teammate, before she gets stabbed by uh, Krieger. Um, sorry, that's, I guess, a spoiler for a 22-year-old movie that this is a movie to a sequel to. He says it to his teammate, and it gets said a bunch of times, walk away, it, leave without dying. And this movie, they trotted out a bunch of times, and it's understood that all the good people, and I guess when I say good people, I don't mean it's a difference between people who are acceptable and people who are obviously unacceptable and bad. It's more the people who are taking it upon themselves to be the protectors versus the people who just live here and the um, versus the true villains, right? These are sort of, there's multiple classes of involvement in impossibling that happens, right? The spy game has enthusiastic uh, uh, participants and then it has non-participants and it has enthusiastic non-participants and then it has sort of counter-participants. But there's a bunch of times in the movie where it's like, walk away and they're like, no, you know perfectly well that the moral thing for me to do in this situation is not walk away. And so here we have a situation where these dudes, you know, seven tall dudes or whatever, six tall dudes or whatever it are, happen upon this situation and joke about it and then walk away. And I guess it's not necessarily that they're bad, but it's sort of like they have that luxury. They could walk away and they do walk away because there are people like that French meter maid who are not going to walk away and are going to like and are going to force the issue. Right. There's people who have the courage and moral fortitude and commitment to not walk away from a situation. Now, granted, a gay orgy in a bathroom stall is not something that requires intervention. Uh, that is that is something in which the intervening that is taking place is taking place of its own accord and need not be enlarged or uh, enlivened further uh, without respective mutual uh, consent and such. But the idea being that they came into the situation with John Lark and they did nothing and they joked about it and they left. And that's like a venal sort of sin rather than a mortal one. It's more the occasion and reason for why people have to do better. Because given because all the rest of the people are just jancing at the party, right? Everybody else is just at the party, except for the people who are taking it upon themselves to make a difference in the world. Uh, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with being at the party. It's fine. 
you know, but it's not what Ethan Hawke does with his time because Ethan Hawke's a hero. Yeah. Uh, you, you, might, you might even say that uh, he's one of the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> Ethan Hawke is. <laughs> well, I think it's uh, I think it's time uh, that for this impossible mission for us to walk away from this podcast. Thank you very much for listening to it. Pete and Mark, thank you for podcasting. We'll be back with more overthinking it podcast next week it's uh it's summer so it's uh it's summer concert season guys you know uh so uh it'll be a pretty 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 uh pretty fun to talk about that maybe let's uh let's see what we come up with we'll be back next week till then visit us on the web at overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't, doesn't Deserve. He's going to be 60 next time. <laughs> <laughs>